Welcome to the Salty Mujerista podcast, where we have honest conversations about race, news, and culture from diverse perspectives in Treaty 6, Métis Region 4. I'm La Salty Mujerista, and our guest today is Shima Robinson. Hey, Shima. Hello. I am so excited to have you on the show. Uh, Shima and I have known each other for a few years, and I'm such a huge fan of the work that you do. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And it's it's a smoky day in Edmonton today. I'm really glad that you made it with the weather being the way that it is. We're still dealing with forest fires and smoke and everything. So thank you for being here. Of course. Yes, it is indeed a smoky day, but we we have to carry on. <laughs> <laughs> carry on as we do. That's right. So let's get into it. We like to start off the show with a segment we call a temperature check and we, where we check in with each other and see how we're surviving. Shima, how are you doing? I'm like doing okay. To be honest, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little wilty today, Aww. but that's okay because it's because I'm working really hard on the things and, and I'm generally happy to be here speaking to you on this occasion. Um, but yeah, no, things are good in other realms of existence other than my immediate energy levels so <laughs> i feel you i feel you on the way over i was gonna walk over and i couldn't do it so i took an uber and the uber driver was like rough night last night and i was like i'm on day six of a migraine <laughs> like do not judge me sir um yeah. so <laughs> and i'm dealing with some vertigo so if i seem a little out of it just bear with me it's just we're we're just we're surviving yeah guaranteed guaranteed and we're allowed to not be perfect. No, no, it's a surviving kind of day. It's a surviving day. Yeah, that's right. So let's get into the heart of it. This is a segment where we dive into the conversation. Um, you are doing, you're everywhere doing everything at once. Yeah. So Shima has just been shortlisted for the Poet Laureate in Edmonton. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, Shima also works as a creative director for the Edmonton Poetry Festival. She's the learning and outreach manager with Fringe Theatre. And she's going to be performing and emceeing at North Country Fair from June 23rd to 25th. I am such a huge fan of all the work that you do. You do such important work in our community. And everything that you do has such a dramatic impact on the arts. So it's a real, it's a real pleasure to know you, Shima. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, small correction, though. I am not the creative director of the Edmonds Poetry Festival. I'm the artistic producer, uh-huh. which is a slightly different... It's a different, but um, <laughs> that's just technicality. Um, yeah, I am. I am deeply involved in arts, building community capacity and space and awareness about ways to make the arts really representative of the communities that are local to Amiskwachi Waskaigan, aka Edmonton, Alberta. Um, yeah, it's. It's really important to me to do that work because I am an artist and was an artist from, you know, a young age. And uh, I grew up in this city. I was born here, raised here. And when I was 19 years old, being a spoken word poet was not like a feasible career choice at all. Yeah. It's barely feasible now as a career (laughs) choice. But back then it was like, you know, people ask you to do shows for free and people don't really have any connection to what the meaning of that practice of oratory is. And it's so important. One of the things I always tell people about poetry and oratory and advocacy is that they're all at this root of of oral tradition. Yeah. And that is a, a historically vibrant art form in Amiskwachi Waskagan because of the history of the valley as a gathering place and a 
sharing space and a place for telling stories, right? Like it's like that's what we're supposed to be doing in accordance with the landscape as per the history that we know. And yeah, it's just important for me to facilitate that in some way. And it's a natural progression of me doing it for years because I've I've been a poet in Edmonton uh, almost 20 years. Yeah, so my 19th you've been at year it for a long time. As a professional, like yeah. a 19-year professional career. And so that's that um, makes me really, really keenly aware of like a couple of things. No, not a couple of things. A lot of things that are barriers, you know, barriers to this, barriers to that, mm-hmm. barriers to accessing performance spaces, reasonable wage for your artwork, you know, like it's our reasonable pay for your artwork, artist fees. Um, there's so many barriers for so many people and I've been, re- I've been fairly successful in my, uh, taking on of those barriers. Like I've been, I've been wrestling with the, with the, with the issue for a long time. And, uh, and now I guess the idea is to make sure that that knowledge and that, that capacity stays in the, in the community. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you come from quite an artistic family too. Oh, your, definitely. Your brother's a rapper. Your mom is a well-established artist in the city as well. Right. Visual art. Your mom's a visual art extraordinaire. Uh, visual you killed it at karaoke the other night. Oh, definitely. My mom can <laughs> sing. Where, that's where I get it from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, my, my younger brother's a dancer. My older brother's a rapper. My mother is a visual artist. All of us are artists in some way. And we all contend with a lot of, um, well, just challenges, hurdles, because because of the nature of think the way systems are set up to systems are set up to kind of exploit art yeah. more than they are to appreciate and elevate art, and so we get into tough situations emerging as artists. I think we've all not well, maybe not all of us, but we're mostly established in what we do among the peers that matter most to us individually and so now it's a matter of like building capacity i love to say building capacity about everything i do because i'm like that's all it is and you just build capacity to do things better build capacity to have more access build capacity to be more vibrant build capacity to support one another better um that's kind of where it's at and be to make sure that people understand that there there are standards there are standards that are that nurture a sense of safer space. That's a that's a that's a it's a tough thing to tackle because it's like how do you do that without putting a rule a, a rule list in front of someone as they walk through the doors? And I'm like, of course, a putting a list of rules in, on a, on a door doesn't really do anything about people's behavior once they once they enter the space. Yeah. So this cultural sea change, the idea of a cultural sea change where people just start to fall in people just start to be like hey we don't do this abhorrent thing here because it's abhorrent and we recognize it what we do instead is this cool thing over here and it's not told to someone it's not a directive it's just known it's just the way things go it's observed it's respected um that's that's i think the aim of a lot of that work that i do a lot of the work that I do has to do with like building out some kind of sense of justice. Like where, where does the justice lie with us when we, when we are in community, uh, building a sense of safety, building a sense of 
care, building a sense of creative bravery. I love that for you. And the work is so important. These are spaces that have historically excluded a broad range of communities. Um, so it's really, really great to see. And you, you do a lot of this work, not just in, not just in your professional life, but you do this in your personal life as well. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? So personal life, I guess, I guess in my personal life, yeah, here we go. Um, (laughs) like, what do I do when I'm not working? I sleep. Um, (laughs) but yeah, no, I'm a poet, right? I'm a spoken word poet. I'm an orator. I do practice the things that I that I espouse um and I am as an artist I am committed to doing that work on myself before more than I am committed to soapboxing and telling people what's up I'm like this is a demonstrative process for me I'm building in my own capacity to talk about my my being as real and important and and uh consequential and vital to something that is bigger than the things that are prescribed for women to be vital to you know what i mean like realistically speaking it's like i'm trying to open up that sense of uh what is authentically existent about my being that's like the whole thrust of most of my artwork. Yeah. And so, yeah, I published a couple books. And the the first book is called Horn. The second book is called Bellow. Bellow is also an album called The Bellow Project, which can be found on Bandcamp. Which, and also has a QR code in the back of the book Bellow. Lots of bees <laughs> happening here. Um, and uh, that book is available at Glass Bookshop. Right. Published by Glasshouse Press. That's right. Because we're also supporting local independent bookstores. Yes, we are. And And also support Glass Bookshop and go also to their harm reduction trainings that happen uh, the first Tuesday of every month. Uh, They're run that those harm reduction trainings are run by 4B Harm Reduction Society and uh they're great they teach you how to use naloxone they talk about harm reduction as a as a philosophy an approach a lens it's great go do it absolutely so they were actually the first guest we had on this podcast and we just um there was a fundraiser for for b harm reduction at the aviary just last night um so hopefully uh you were able to make it out and catch it um but we Cannot say enough good things about the work that they do. They're so important to community. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so thanks for that plug. Um, love the work that Glass Bookshop is doing in collaboration with them as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of good things that you're working on right now. Um, and like I was saying, you, you do a lot of this stuff in your personal life as well. A, a lot of the work that you do, the community advocacy, is unpaid work. And that's really important for people to remember because... So much of the change that we see in community happens like by regular people choosing to get involved and donating their time and their resources, which is not to say that people shouldn't be compensated for their work, but it's important to remember that anybody can do this. And there was a great example of a bunch of community members coming together, recognizing a problem, pulling together, pulling together resources, 
to create meaningful change. Um, and this happened a few years ago. You were directly involved with the work that happened at Camp Pekawaywin. Right. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Pekawaywin was a relief and prayer camp uh, that was established by a group of people, very large, disparate group of people who, like you say, are were just like people who either had some experience working frontline human service work or they had an investment in the issue of like justice for uh justice and and support uh for people who are vulnerable and or unhoused in our communities um and i remember i remember i went to the the first morning of this encampment setup and i helped set up a couple of service tents and saw them put the teepee up and then about noon that day, somebody was like, hey, can you do the media liaison work? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> so I did. And um, yeah, and it was, as you say, a volunteer basis. Because, of course, there was no organization running the camp, the encampment. It was just people coming together using what we had as pooled collective community resources to figure out some kind of relief for the folks who were basically abandoned by the city uh, at one of the hardest times in known history um, of the city um, during the pandemic, the first, the first uh, wave and second wave of the pandemic. So um, yeah, it's uh, that level of, of work is, not it, it it is key it is crucial it is not something that should remain in this space of i i think it's like it shouldn't necessarily remain in the space of volunteerism right right like as as you said before it's not that people shouldn't be compensated for the work it's not like that's like some kind of you know big bragging right type type yeah. thing it's that when there's an emergency you have to kind of just get down and do it now it's an interesting thing in my in my career and in my life. Not and these and these are not direct ca uh, causal relationships, but I have been able to translate the skills that I used for the advocacy work that I did at Pekewayon Camp, which involved being the media liaison, which I will go into a little more depth here. Basically, meant taking interviews from every major news outlet that wanted to know why there was this encampment and what was happening and why and from the perspective yeah from the perspective of the people doing the support work right. and i was like well can talk about that oratory is the skill that got me that was that made me able to talk about that in a way that was flexible responsive and iterative of the points that we had to reiterate all the time you know, I remember saying a million times, we need more services and supports for unhoused community members. We need the the following things respected. There are, you know, there 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 were so many things that needed to be repeated a million times in the news because spin in media is the name of the game. It's the rule of the day. And um, the spin would have taken whatever was said and spun it in a way that would be unfaithful to the reality of what we were doing if I hadn't been able to reiterate it so much. That was sort of the gist of that work. Um, Pecky Wayland Camp ended after 100 days of feeding and supporting and connecting people 
who needed housing supports, uh, mental health and addiction supports, medical support, a hundred days of connection between, I don't know, two to 400 people to those types of supports all the time. Uh, it ended in an ugly, ugly police raid. And, um, yeah, it, uh, it, uh, it changed the way that I approach my life's work, I think. And it changed the way that I approach my, um, the ways in which I do advocacy, the ways in which I show up for my community, uh, and the ways in which I take care of myself while doing it. Um, because all of those, all of the, the experiences on that encampment woke me up in a lot of ways, especially at that time, because we we're all locked down. Mm -hmm. Like it was, this was not an easy time to be going out at all. Right. <laughs> and so we all went out there and just did what we could. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it, it really informed a lot of, a lot of my perspectives and approaches and made, made it possible for me to do the work that I do now in all facets, including my master's degree, which I haven't even talked about yet, but, uh, maybe I'll you get into that later. Everything. Yeah. Well, the master's degree is coming along and it's, <laughs> uh, it's almost done Yeah, and it's, uh, really mostly focused on, um, actually entirely focused on exploring citizenship and belonging um for black and indigenous community members and or indigenous community members in uh and is all about talking about that through creative writing and is all about exploratory research and i'm really excited to do it and uh i'm really thrilled about being able to explore those topics more in uh, my academic brain as well because there's lots of brain capacity in me <laughs> right so yeah that's amazing so and, and it's such an interesting topic you know when we talk about um citizenship and belonging you know i think as people who are not native to these lands um who are not you know people who are are descended from immigrants and people who are descended from refugees um, because those experiences are are very different. Um, it's sometimes easy to forget that that we're part of a bigger collective history, and we have a responsibility to continue to honor um, the history that predated our arrival here. Exactly. And it's also like for me, it's like, I think, especially in the case of people who immigrate, um, people who come to Canada, I guess, or come to any part of Canada um, as an immigrant, a refugee, even just as somebody who looks like they might be an immigrant or a refugee, we are bombarded with lots of messaging and imagery of this land of milk and honey concept. We yeah. are told repeatedly by the official governmental institutions that you can do what you need to do here. You don't have to worry about it. Don't even like, don't even question it. You've arrived. Yep. And I'm like, that narrative is the direct result of racist government policy that 
omits the history that needs to be taught. And so um, when I think about that, I'm like, yeah, it's important to keep reiterating this, not only in these sort of like, and like, like I, I guess with a less racialized lens on target audience, I'm like every single person in this country on Turtle Island even needs to hear and understand what the values, ethics, and ethos of advocacy and resistance to state violence looks like. Yeah. And I, and feels like, and sounds like, and I think it's important to, to really acknowledge though, that like people, people even, people in my family, people in my family who come who've come to Edmonton like we have a history here it's not like we have no history but it's like we have to acknowledge that that history like you say lives in a context that context is larger than our family's history that context is larger than state the history of state policy that context is larger it's 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 vast and I think it's it's hard to fathom that so it's like patience is key you know, kindness is key when doing this work, but also, you know, persistence is key because it's, we, Canada turned 150 years old, what, three or four years ago, whatever it was. I can't even remember because to me, it's inconsequential because I'm just like, well, 150 years is not that long <laughs> for yeah. a nation to exist and everything has been done to suppress dehumanize demean and and obliterate indigenous presence in this country and the resistance efforts of many people across the board have been integral to stopping that effort stopping that stopping that that genocide Shall we just use the word? Yeah. And uh, we're at a pivotal moment in history because all of this is readily in the news. Even if you listen to CBC, it's in there every day. And I'm like, we need to, to keep that in the mind, in the zeitgeist. We have to keep that in the culture, the spirit of the time. We have to, that awareness has to be present always, forever, after, um, as we build towards better relationships with one another. Um, and that's not contingent on whether you're black or white or brown or identify as whatever ethnicity or whatever. I'm like, everybody needs to be on board with this. Yeah. Right. It does. It's so, so we're not exempt is what I'm saying. Like, I'm, I, I feel like there's some strained political <laughs> relation stuff happening with people who identify as being POC and people who identify as being black and people who identify as being indigenous. Mm -hmm. There's stuff going on there. Because those aren't all lateral positions just because everybody's racialized. Yeah. Right? And so then that, that becomes another issue. But anyway, I'm getting into... I'm getting into the academics of it. But, uh, <laughs> no, but these are important conversations that we need to be having. We need to be having them, like, continuously. Yeah. Because as the conversation evolves, so does the public consciousness. Yeah. And we need to continue to revisit these topics, particularly within our own communities. Um, you know, when we talk about race issues, you're right. Sometimes we need to forget 
you know, not all skin folk are kin folk. Yeah. Right. And 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 it's and and also like this is it's gonna be a drastically like radical thing to say, uh, but I'm always saying this, so I better say it here. Um, I think what we need to remember a lot of the time is how to parse the difference between somebody saying race doesn't exist and somebody saying I don't see color because they aren't the same statement. They're not the same, right? People who quote unquote don't see color. I'm like, well, you're lying, first of all. <laughs> like, that's a lie. Second of all, um, that is a telling lie because it's there's a there's a direct attempt to sort of state that you are better than everybody else who apparently does. Right. Um, and who and who or apparently you're you're above all of the social ramifications that keep racism at the forefront of all of our policymaking, you know, which, which trickles into everybody's life. Right. Because it's about access. It's about support and resources. It's about the right to self-express. These things are governed. Right. And when I say that race doesn't exist, of course, I'm positing that simple scientific statement, which has proven it has been proven over and over and over again. And I'm also saying that because the core and key position of racism is that race exists. Yeah. That is the one thing that we are having trouble with, in my view, as a society, <laughs> to sort of deal with. It's like, you, we have to acknowledge the harms done and redress the harms done by racism. The key idea of racism is that race is a fact and it's not a fact. And it's a hard thing to swallow as an idea. Because mm -hmm. then we have to sort of think about the ways in which a lot of our resistance efforts, a lot of our community empowerment efforts, a lot of our other efforts are built on the idea of serving people based on racialization. But that's a dangerous line to walk. And so, and then it also... Because it, it becomes exclusive. It becomes exclusive. It becomes exclusive and it becomes... Um, it becomes teleological, I think is the right word. Where it's like... For, use myself as an example like i'm black i'm uh um which is of course not not really good a good descriptor of what's going on with me but i'm black and accordance with racism it's the race that i've been ascribed by the system um therefore i need services that are built for black people right but i don't want to be subject to racism uh and i need support um and why is that well it's because i'm black like you know what i mean like yeah. it's just like none of that really makes sense as a way to move out of the paradigm all of that is circular and weird i don't mm -hmm. know if theological is the right word but it doesn't matter the point is to get out of that circle of like the vicious cycle of like well I'm black, so I deserve support, but I don't know how to, you know, like I, I, I don't want to be racialized. I don't, I don't, I don't want to experience racism, and so I need to overcome it. And how am I going to overcome it? I'm going to identify with my blackness, and I'm like, okay, well, for me, it's more about figuring out how to identify as a human being. How am I a human being? And and not despite anything, not because of anything, simply because it's a fact. I'm a human being. Yeah. And then dealing with all of the isms and the racialization and all the other oppressive stuff as what it is and not internalizing any of it, not internalizing colorism, 
for example, I'm not internalizing the ways in which um, I think especially people in my subject position writ large, which is that I'm a, uh, I'm a Canadian citizen born here, raised here, living in the place where I was born and raised in this country. And I don't like, I don't, I guess it's not that I don't experience like barriers and issues and problems and racism, but I don't identify with the idea of the land and milk, land of milk and honey. It doesn't make sense to me because right. I because I because I came up in this this place and I'm like, oh, it's not though. Like <laughs> it's yeah. really hard out here. You know what I mean? Like it's really hard out here. And so I guess that's that's kind of where I'm at with that stuff. You know, it's it's funny that you're talking about that. We just had Michelle Campos Castillo on the show when we were talking about Latinidad, and we were talking about how sometimes. Um, we have this idea of what Latinidad is supposed to look like right. and the way that you perform it. And I think that sometimes these racial labels, these they they can be very limiting because we have this idea of what your experience is supposed to be like because of the color of your skin or because of the race that you describe. Right. Um and it's fed to us by the media machine in Hollywood. It's not it's not like a real thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't see, I don't see uh, myself in the media juggernauts that prescribe what blackness is. Yeah. I, I, there's some of it that seeps into my subjectivity, into my character, because I'm constantly exposed to the representation and that's what it looks like, sounds like, feels like, whatever. But, knowing very much very important to know that it's like that's not a reflection of me that is a, a generation a, a generated aesthetic that that is accessible to me but it's not me right like i can I, it's usable it's definitely usable which is why it's still around but i'm like mm, is it healthy is it sup is it supportive is it sustenance is it is it any of the things we were working towards when we start to talk about community communities of care? And I I feel like there are things that have happened and continue to happen um, in the limelight that are so harmful, so harmful. And and that and then the, and then the way that that the 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 selling of the imagery of blackness or Latinidad, how it all works, it's it pigeonholes. It's still just the Barbie doll. Yeah. It is not like the actual in the flesh person. Because it's so reductive. It's it's incredibly reductive. And it yeah. it when you reduce a culture to something like that or a cultural experience to something like that, it becomes something that you can commodify. Yeah. I recently um I recently got into it. Well didn't really get into it. I commented to uh one of my white friends about uh about supporting taquerias that are not run by Latinos and selling this idea of this like Mexican experience or this Latin experience that is quickly to be commod it's quick to be commodified right. by people who are not of our culture. Right. And the need to support people that, you know, that this 
experience belongs to. Right. So there is there is that side of it too. It's just that we need to evolve the discourse of how we show up for one another. Because it's not like I'm like I I understand fully that times have been tougher than they are now. And so it's not really about, I guess it's just about avoiding the, pit, the, 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 the pitfall of thinking that because whatever people call, whatever it is that people imagine when they say the word woke, yeah. that has hit the mainstream yeah. and is now being toyed with and noodled with and used in political campaigns and whatever. And it's not actually what anybody was talking about seven years ago. No, it's just like people being like, oh, well, you know, if you're like nice to people, then you're woke. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not not, that's not accurate at all. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just like because now the language again, uh, neoliberalism co-ops the language of resistance every time, all the time. We have to be very mindful of the co-optation of that language because it's not like we can just replace every single word that we come up with. Yep. And so then that, and that doesn't mean saying the words more. It means reiterating within our communities, through our family structures, through our chosen family, what the meaning of those words is. Yeah. So somebody can push back against the the idea that um, simple, simple kindness is just woke. Yeah. I'm like, woke, wokeness was this whole movement. Yeah. And it was more about people empowering themselves with knowledge compassion and community connection than it was about like you know policy yeah you know or government or whatever whatever's going on right so i think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting task because it's very very nuanced like my brain is like splitting into a million pieces all the time because i'm just like okay we have to dig around in this stuff and figure out what's being done and how to do it and all this st- other stuff. Um, but we have to remember that there's a root ethic and that root ethic is not coming from, um, it doesn't come from the media. It doesn't come from the news. It doesn't come from Hollywood. It doesn't come from movies. It doesn't come from independent films. It doesn't come from any of that stuff. It's come from, it does not come from screens and paper. Mm-hmm. It comes from the hearts of people. And that ethic is unassailable. Like, it just can't, like, you, there's no way to be like, oh, that's invalid. But people try to do that all the time. Right? I don't know. There's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And it's and it's like a, it's a, it, it's a very, uh, what's, what is the word? R- rhetorical thing sometimes. It's all about the way we use words and how do we parse these things and make sure that we have a clear idea in our brains about what we're trying to do but it's a valuable exercise regardless of the frustrations of semantics or whatever we're doing right like it's like it's still worth it to explore what we mean when we say the word woke because somebody remembers it from 10 years ago. Somebody remembers it from further back. Somebody remembers what it used to be before it was woke. Somebody remembers what it was when there, people were raising the roof on all kinds of injustices and oppression all over the world because um, this stuff happens in waves. We call them movements and it's not necessarily a movement. It's not orchestrated. It happens because people get woken up, hence the term, I guess. 
But anyway. And I think, you know, one of the key elements that people tend to miss when they're, you know, when they're examining their role in this and whether or not, whether or not they're being, you know, whether or not they're adhering to this wokeness, like actually for what it is, is I think there's sometimes a lack of community. and There's a lack of reciprocity. Guaranteed. And there's this very, very doggy dog thing happening now where people are like, well, you said that wrong. Therefore, you're not woke. They're not saying woke anymore. They're just treating you like shit. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not um, it's not even a statement anymore. It's an action. It's a redress of what an imagined harm done by somebody who just doesn't understand or doesn't know or maybe doesn't even care about whatever the the judgment the the standard being judged is because some of those standards are arbitrary some of those standards are red herrings you know some of that stuff is uh is difficult to reconcile with when you think about what it takes to get through the day yeah and i think it's 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 really really key that we remain vigilant of what passes for radical culture radical is to grasp at the root as per angela davis and it has nothing to do with burning everything down it has to do with building things up based on a fundamental um, fundamental ethic of care that's what it has to do with so well said well how was that for getting into the thick of it uh (laughs) Cool. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh let's move on to our final segment uh where we talk about good shit um where we talk about something that made us smile this week or something that we're grateful or hopeful about what do you what do you have in in your life that you know you think that's some good shit i have lots of things in my life that are like that so oh. uh i guess and like small leisure time i'm a avid dart player i play darts a lot love it so much and uh, that's one of the things i do uh just to give an immediate dopamine hit when you hit the bullseye immediate immediate anyway it's very nice (laughs) and um performing i'm performing a lot this summer teaching a lot this summer I teach the kiddos, the the 15-year-olds to the 19-year-olds to the 12-year-olds, teach all the kiddos about spoken word poetry. And it's a it feeds my soul. It's lovely. So I'm going to go do that at Wordsworth, which is a youth camp uh, run by the Writers Guild of Alberta. That is so cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a lovely thing. And I know the camp director, a good friend of mine. And they had me on last year, and I, I did it and loved it. So I'm going back. And then uh, I'm going to North Country Fair to perform and camp and have a grand old time reconnecting on the land. It's a bunch of good folks. And that's that's how we're going to do that. I don't even know what else. Writing, freestyle rapping. I'm a rapper now, <laughs> sort of. Uh, no, but actually I do, a, I do two monthly hip hop cypher, like rap cypher, MC cypher type events a week if I can get to them. Uh, if I if I can't get to all of them, I'll get to one or two. There's three that happen. 
One's at River City Revival. One's at the Grindstone Theater. And one's at uh, Saturdays uh, at uh, the Underdog, at the Black Dog. River City and Grindstone are on Thursdays between 8 o'clock and the end of the night. And um, yeah, it's feeding my soul to change up my delivery, change up my thought process, change up my sense of capacity, humble myself a bit. It's all about humility. Yeah, doing that. And that's 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 giving me life and leading to my plans for my next art thing, my artwork. Uh, I'm going to be, hopefully, I mean, I mean, we'll see if the idea changes, but I think I'm going to be writing a hip-hop album with uh, live instrumentation from local artists, including beats and and, and live instrumentation. Uh, and then I'm also going to uh, put the lyrics in a book and perhaps print vinyl, like like create vinyl for it. Who that knows? That would help. Who knows? That is so sick. I love that you're doing that. I hope it turns out like that. Yeah, thank you. It's a five-year plan. It's fine. <laughs> I'll figure <laughs> it out. I'll figure it out. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. Good shit. Yeah. That's really good shit. That's the kind of good shit that's well on your face. Yeah. I love that for you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Rosalta Mujerista. And I'm Shima Robinson, a.k.a. Dwenevin. This podcast is made possible thanks to listeners like you. A heartfelt thank you to our patrons, Jackson Nguyen, Mike Wang, and Rowan Fox from Edmonton, Alberta, and Katie from Vancouver, British Columbia. To join our Patreon, visit saltimujerista.com or patreon.com slash lasaltimujerista. La Saltimujerista is a podcast created by me, Tanya Gonzalez, and is produced by Anna Lafreniere. The views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily reflect the salty morista, its creators, or its sponsors. Stay salty, mi gente. <laughs>